Romans chapter 2 this morning. We'll actually get a running start at it. Remind ourselves where we were a couple weeks ago. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we will see if we can't remedy that condition. Romans chapter 2. We're back in our footsteps of Paul's study after a week away for Resurrection Sunday. And it's, a, it's sort of a whiplash thing this morning because we're going to go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. We're going to go from talking about Christ risen to the depths of wrath that he died to save us from. This morning, we're going deep into the wrath of God. Someone texted me this week, haven't been at church for a minute, and they said, hey, going to be there Sunday. Where are we at? I said, Romans. They said, where in Romans? I want to read ahead. I told them, and they texted back a little while later, just one word, whoa. <laughs> they said W-H-O-A, but W-O-E would have worked too. Talking about the passage that we're in, we started two weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 18. We're continuing this morning. Charles Spurgeon talked about this passage, and he said, it's not fit to be spoken in the assembly. He said, I'd rather not talk about it. I really don't want to preach on it. Go ahead and read, uh, read it at home. It's too terrible, he said, to speak aloud in church. But of course he did. Of course he preached not one but many sermons on the subject because he knew he had to. He knew it was necessary. We've called our study in Romans Grace Revealed, and that is our focus it was our focus in worship this morning. Did you notice that theme of grace kept coming around? But if we're going to study grace and understand grace and appropriate God's grace to our lives, we have to study wrath. Because if we don't appreciate wrath, we won't understand grace. Many, many, many say, no, I, I don't want to. You can't make me. And that's true. But if we refuse to study God's wrath, we can't fully understand sin. We won't completely comprehend the price that Jesus paid, the blood that he shed to ransom us from our sin and to save us from wrath. Without an understanding of wrath, we will lack an understanding of the gospel. And I get that wrath is not the most fun you've ever had at church on a Sunday morning. Which is why it's, it's easy and people go on over their way to downplay it, to steer around it, to avoid the subject altogether. I remember in school, I went, to, I went to school with a Methodist pastor who would often say, I don't understand evangelicals. I didn't either because I wasn't one yet. But she would say, I, I, I don't understand why, why they can't have to keep going on about the blood and the death and the suffering and the cross and all of it, and it's gore and it's violent, and is that really what God wants us to be thinking about? It's part of what he wants us to be thinking about because he gave us the Lord's Supper as a remembrance so that periodically we would be reminded of his body broken for us and his blood poured out. Because Jesus knew if we go too long not thinking about it, not meditating on the suffering of our Lord, not remembering his blood and his death and the part where he becomes sin for us and bears the wrath that we deserve, we're going to end up 
well, we're going to end up where a lot of churches are today. Writing almost 100 years ago, Richard Niebuhr, in a book about the church in America, 100 years ago almost, 1938, he warned that we would be a church with a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ with no cross. He got it pretty close, didn't he? In our text this morning, Paul's going to warn us about that. He's going to warn us about the danger of neglecting to consider God's wrath, the reality of it, for our sin. So we're going to talk this morning about how we try to duck the subject. We're going to talk about why it doesn't work to duck the subject. And we'll end up talking about how we should respond when other people try to duck the subject. Romans 2 except it's been a couple of weeks. So let's dial back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll get a running start at things. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For the sense, the creation of the world is invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And we kept going, but that'll be enough to refresh our memories, I'm sure. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And some people say, okay, well, let's, let's just kind of skim ahead until he talks about something else. Let's pretend this isn't there. This is uncomfortable. That's some people. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Other people, and this is where Paul is going to go this morning, other people read what Paul just said, and they say, right on, Paul! They read that and they cheer. You nailed it, Paul, and we need to get that message out. People need to hear that out there, other people. It, it's often good to read Paul's letters as a dialogue, to understand that, that Paul is carrying on a conversation between himself and an imaginary reader. So, so he says the things that he's saying, and then he imagines a reader having a response to what he says. And then Paul, the next thing he writes, is his response to their response. And that's, that's what's about to happen here. It's useful to understand that, otherwise we might get lost. Paul just got done talking about God's wrath. Those few verses that we read, and he keeps going through the rest of the chapter. And he's, he's imagining the, the, the reader in Rome looking at this letter, reading these words and saying, oh, you tell them, Paul. There are pagans out there that need to hear that. So Paul thinks to himself, that's what they're going to think. And, and they're not wrong. But I've got to make sure that they ask a very important question. I've got to make sure they ask, what about me? So he, he has this thought experiment. He does this, has this conversation in his mind. What about us? He imagines his reader replying. Paul, maybe you forgot already. You're writing to the church in Rome. We're God's people. 
So everything you just said about wrath, there's nothing there for us. It doesn't apply to us. It's not for us. But, but you keep preaching, brother. You keep revealing the wrath of God to those heathens. Tell them if they don't repent, God's going to be revealing his wrath to them forever. That's true, Paul answers in his head. But you didn't let me finish. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And then he goes on and he expands on that and amplifies that and unpacks that. And then he gets to chapter 2 and he says, Therefore... And this, was, this isn't one of those therefores that Paul uses to, to say, okay, by, by way of summation, let me, let, me, let me tie all of that up in a nice, neat bow. This is a therefore that says that he's not done yet. This is a therefore that says he's got more to say on the subject. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Therefore, Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's where that thought leads. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. O reader in Rome. Whoever you are to judge for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. If you're taking notes this morning, here's the first big idea. Here's your first bullet point. Talking about the wrath of God requires reflection. It's not enough to point at other people that we think are deserving of God's wrath. Y'all better look out, because it's coming. No, we need to look at ourselves. Because what Paul just said is as soon as we point at a person, a group, a demographic, and say to them, you deserve God's wrath, whether we, whether we actually say it to them or just say it in our heads, you better look out, God's coming for you. We've put ourselves in saying that, we've put ourselves directly under the microscope. Think about it for a moment. If I put my finger at you and say, I wouldn't want to be you, you are one bad hombre. Oh, God's coming for you. I've just made two important theological statements. First, I've just acknowledged there's such a thing as right and wrong. I've just declared there's good and there's evil, and boy, are you evil. But before I can declare someone evil or someone's conduct to be evil, I have to establish there's such a thing as evil. If I'm pointing my finger at someone, that's the first thing that I'm saying. I'm saying there's evil in the universe and you're guilty of it. The second thing, if I'm pointing my finger at someone and condemning them, if I'm pointing my finger at someone and saying, God's coming for you, I've said there's good and evil, and God is going to judge those who do evil. If I say, hey, y'all better, better buckle up because here comes the giddy up. <laughs> You've done wrong. You're in trouble because God judges people like you. I've just made a universal statement. God judges those who do evil. And Paul's point, and the next point if you're taking notes, if we're willing to say that to someone else, we better run to the nearest mirror and say it to ourselves. Because if it's true for them, it's true for us. If good and evil exist, and God judges those who are evil, then that probably includes me. Does include me. No exceptions. God is going to judge those, all of those who do wrong.
whether they're sitting in a church in Rome or not. Now, when Paul wrote this paragraph, he was probably, scholars suspect, probably thinking of a Jewish reader. The imaginary correspondent that he's imagining answering back to his various points He's probably imagining to be Jewish and responding to what he said in chapter 1 by saying, oh, the Gentiles need to hear that, Paul. Good thing we're special. Good thing we're God's chosen people. Good thing we're exempt. <laughs> no, Paul is saying. You're not special, not the way that you're thinking. Yeah, you're Jewish, but you're still born into sin. Some scholars think that he was writing to the intellectuals of Rome. Okay, you're the smartest guy in the city, but you still need to be forgiven. You can find some who think that he was writing to the wealthy. Fine, you're fantastically rich, but you still need Jesus to pay the price for your sin. Doesn't matter who you are is the point. Doesn't matter where you come from, Paul is saying. You deserve God's wrath, period. And if you don't ask Jesus to take that wrath for you, if you don't take him up on his offer to trade places with you, if you don't say, yes, Jesus, take all of my sin and, and, and all of God's justice for my sin and give me your righteousness, which is the offer he extends to all of us, if we don't say, yes, Lord, we'll bear God's wrath. And we'll bear it alone. Take it a step further. That's who Paul thinks he's writing to. That's who he's envisioning. A Jewish reader, an intellectual reader, a wealthy reader. But he's making a broader point here that we need to apprehend. He's writing just as much to the smug churchgoer who says, oh, those Muslims, they need to hear about God's wrath. He's writing just as much to the family values conservative who says, all oh, those liberals, those, those Hollywood people, those New York, they need to hear about God's wrath. I personally imagine Paul writing to parents. Be careful, I'm going to poke somebody. <laughs> but hear me on this. Paul is writing to parents who come to church and bring their children to church because their children need to learn right and wrong. They're okay. I'm good, but it's my kids. They need to learn about God and sin, so they'll behave. That's great, Mom and Dad. But Paul's question to you, along with the rest of us, what about you? I mean, I mean look, that's not wrong. Children, liberals, Muslims, all very much need to hear about God's wrath and the forgiveness from wrath that Jesus purchased at the cross. But, but so do we. And it doesn't matter who we are or where we come from. Some of us here this morning might actually need the conversation more. Because you know about God, you've grown up in church, you call yourself Christian because you know you're not Jewish or Muslim. And you know enough about sin and evil to call it out when you see it. But are you willing to let God call it out in you? Are you willing to let God reveal the evil in you to you? 
Because if you resist that, if you reject the whole idea of that, you're the one who's going to end up in big trouble. Because if you don't acknowledge sin, well, then there's no need for forgiveness. There's no need for repentance. There's no need for Jesus. There's no propitiation. There's no sacrifice in your place. And the wrath of God will be coming for you. But we run away from that whole idea because that kind of introspection is hard. It's not fun. And it might lead us to taking Jesus way more seriously than we intend. Much easier to point fingers. Much easier to look at a list like at the end of chapter 1. Sexual immorality. Yeah, next door neighbor. Covetousness. Across the street neighbor. Whisperers. That's Margie at work. Backbiters. That's my brother-in-law. Proud. That's my kids. Disobedient to parents, also my kids. <laughs> it's easy to just go down and say you, you, them, and not hear when the Holy Spirit asks, what about you? Moi? <laughs> Who's nicer than me? I mean, you got to admit, at least I mean well. I have nothing, nothing but good intentions. One of the worst parts of our sin nature, the corruption of our DNA that we inherited from Adam and Eve, is that we are wired to judge other people by their actions and at the same time expect to be judged on our best intentions. Verse 2, Paul says, it doesn't work that way. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things, who do such things, who act in these ways. We can talk about good intentions all we want, but here's your next point. God knows our decisions. The actions we decide to take, the thoughts we decide to entertain. Not the random things that pop into our head, but the ones that we take home and make pets out of. God knows our decisions. We can rationalize all we want, but at the end of the day, we're going to be judged by the things that we do, and we all do things. And that's just what it is, Paul says in verse 2. That's the truth with a capital T. You can run from it, you can deny it, doesn't change it. Think about David and Bathsheba. You know the story. David sleeps with Bathsheba and then murders her husband Uriah to cover it up. Thinks he's gotten away with it. Thinks everything is fine. Until Nathan comes along and says, David, got to tell you about a horrible crime that's happened in the kingdom. Unexpected guest showed up at a rich man's house. He wanted to throw them a lavish dinner to impress them, but he didn't want to pay for it. So rather than taking a lamb from his own livestock, of which he had a hundred, he goes next door to a poor man and takes his only lamb, who wasn't even livestock for him. He was a, it was a pet. It was part of his family. And he served that up for dinner. Nathan tells David the story. You know David's response. 2 Samuel 12, 5, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, this fictitious man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. David's, uh, I'm sorry, Nathan's answer, you know this. 
dude, it's you. <laughs> David, you are the man. David tried what we all try. He tried to duck. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. We all do what Adam and Eve did. They sinned. What's the next thing that they did? They hid. Yeah. They hid themselves. We don't want to acknowledge our sin or our sinfulness, so we hide, rationalize, equivocate, pretend. Sometimes we even convince ourselves. And when we think we're about to be found out, point to somebody else. Best way to hide, create a diversion. Hey, look at him. Look at what she's doing. Look over there at what they're up to. Look anywhere but at me. And it works pretty well with people. Because apart from Christ, we all have our own sin that we're trying to hide from. So, so, so pointing at someone else they're guilty of something. And if we can all decide that we're going to gang up on one person or one class of people and condemn them, well, that'll be a pretty good diversion for all of us. Then we can all hide. Problem is it doesn't work with God. God, you may not realize this, God is able to think about two things at once. God can pay attention to more than one thing at a time. So we're all saying, look at him, look at her, look at them. God says, yeah, I know. What about you? But, 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 but him and her and them, I, I see them. I'm dealing with them. But I can do two things at once. Let's talk about you. And do you think this, O oh man, verse 3, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same while doing the same, do you really think you will escape the judgment of God? I'm not practicing those things. I'm not doing any of those things. I'm not doing anything. Are you sure? Maybe you need to look at that list at the end of chapter one again and read it remembering the words of Jesus who told us you don't have to sleep some with someone to commit adultery. You don't have to actually kill someone to commit murder. Look at that list and tell me again that you're innocent. Because it doesn't work reading it trying to find the really, really bad thing that you haven't done yet. God doesn't grade on a curve. It doesn't work to find the thing that somebody very publicly, openly, dramatically has done and is doing so that you can say, look, look, they're worse than me. Doesn't work. Because God is still looking at you. God is still listening to you. And verse 3, if you haven't taken shelter in the cross, if you haven't said, Jesus, please bear God's wrath for me, then God's storing up wrath against you. And, 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 and the tragic irony, the fact that we can point at somebody's sins, the fact that you can say, look at them, look at what they're doing, that only condemns you. That only condemns us. I, I didn't understand. I didn't finish reading the Bible. How was I supposed to know? The fact that you know to condemn someone else, the fact that you know that they're guilty, you, you know the grounds on which they're guilty, that's confirmation. Next bullet point. That's proof. Your ability to come condemn someone else is proof you know enough. Francis Schaeffer 
another 20th century theologian, one of the first guys that I read after getting saved, had a powerful illustration for this idea. He says, God is all-knowing, sees all, knows all, remembers all. It's very much as if when we were born, God hung an invisible tape recorder around each of our necks. It was the 1950s. They didn't have MB3s yet. When we're born, God hangs an invisible tape recorder around our neck. So if we stand before him, having said no to Jesus, and try to object when he pronounces our guilt, trying to plead, trying to argue, trying to escape, I don't know. I didn't know. How was I supposed to know? All God has to do is reach over and press play. You did know, God will say to us. Let me prove it. And let me play back for you the thousands and thousands of conversations when you called out other people's sin. You cursed the person who stole your car. That's how I know you know stealing is wrong. You punched someone because you thought they were making eyes at your wife. That's how I know you know adultery is wrong. You moaned and groaned all day about someone who wouldn't let go of a grudge. That's how I know you know unforgiveness is wrong. You got angry when you found out people at work were telling stories about you. That's how I know you know gossip is wrong. And on and on and on. Eventually, the person will give up. I mean, they have to, right? The evidence is right there. Imagine if God were to keep going. How many hours upon hours upon hours would it take to play back all of the conversations that we've had judging other people for their sin? Not that we don't get to. That's not the point. We're, we're supposed to call sin, sin. The point is, every time we do, we leave ourselves without an excuse. Every time we judge someone else for their sin, here's the next point, we admit we know what sin is. Every time we judge other people for their sin, we declare the grounds for our own condemnation. There's right and wrong. And I know what's right and wrong because I'm judging other people for doing wrong. We've established our own metrics, our own scorecard. You probably notice, Paul's not saying anything Jesus didn't say first. Matthew 7, judge not, lest ye be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. We get to call sin, sin. We get to, we're supposed to, we're called to. We don't get to call it out in others then not expect God to do the same to us. He's going to. Francis Schaeffer again. God is completely just. And a man will be judged and found wanting on the same basis on which he has tried to bind others with no exceptions and no excuses and absolutely no hope apart from the cross. Which is the answer, by the way, to those who would ask, what about those who have never heard? What about those who don't know about God and the Bible and Jesus? How can a loving God pour out wrath against someone who's never heard the gospel? Classic way to pose the question, and you've probably heard this, will your loving God condemn an innocent tribesman living on an island who's never heard the name of Christ? 
No. Because there's no such thing as an innocent tribesman. Right? For all the reasons Paul just gave. The innocent tribesman living on an island who's never heard the name of Christ knows that, they're right, that there's right and wrong and has judged other people for doing wrong. There's no one who doesn't know right and wrong. There's no one who doesn't prove it every time they point a finger and accuse someone of ignoring what's right and doing what's wrong. And if we're honest, we know that we fall short of our own standards. Doesn't matter if we live in the city or the country or an island or in the Arctic. Every time we judge others, we condemn ourselves. And every time we condemn ourselves, we prove we need a Savior. Okay, but wait, wait, wait. That person on the island who's condemned, how are they saved if they've never heard the name of Jesus? Okay, that's a deep conversation. And we're going to have it, but not today. Paul's going to make sure we come back to it, but... Let's, let's save it for when we can do it well. For our purposes this morning, I want to go someplace else. I want to point out this morning, and, and, and this is important. Most people asking that question about the person who's never heard the name of Christ, how can they be saved? Will they be saved? Why won't they be saved? Most people asking the question aren't really interested in the answer. You might be, but you're not most people. For most people, the question's a red herring. It's a distraction. It's a way to take the spotlight off of them and onto someone else. It's an objection. The system isn't fair. It's a basis for disqualification. You're not loving. You need to recuse yourself as judge. This whole thing is a contradiction. And if God isn't fair, well, then I get to ignore him. And it makes sense. Condemnation is not a fun place to be. Because eventually you have to make one of two choices. Either deal with the guilt or find a, a reason to disqualify the judge and invalidate the process. Well, the gospel doesn't make sense. This whole thing about Jesus and the gospel, it's flawed, it's not consistent. Whoa. Whoa. The person who texted me this, was, this week was right. Whoa. Slow down. Because let's not talk about the question they're asking. Let's talk about the root issue. When someone goes there with me, okay, you're talking about disqualifying God. Hold that thought. What if we look at the other option? What if we go back and look at the other fork in the road? Bear with me, but what if we talk about salvation? That's your next bullet point, and it's actually our last bullet point. When someone wants to talk about how the gospel isn't fair and God isn't fair and Jesus isn't an equal opportunity savior, okay, hang on. Let's, let's back up. Let's, you want to talk about how people are saved and who's saved and who isn't saved and whether it makes sense or not. Before we talk about that, can we go back to the beginning? And can we see if we agree on one idea? Do you agree... Do people need to be saved? Before we talk about the process of it, what's our goal? Do you see a need for it? Do people need to be saved? Do you need to be saved? And if someone isn't sure, Paul tells us where to go next. Let's talk about right and wrong. Do you agree those concepts exist? 
Is there such a thing as wrong? Have you done wrong? If we hit play on the invisible tape recorder and listen to all the things that make you angry when other people do them to you, have you done any of those things to other people? Have you done wrong by your own definition? Do you need to be forgiven? Because God is holy. And his wrath, his fierce anger, is against unholiness, against evil, against wrong. Now, for now, that wrath is being held back. It's being restrained by his mercy. If you want a visual, think of the Hoover Dam. Holding back an ocean of wrath. A little spills over here and there just to remind us of what's on the other side. But for the most part, God's wrath is restrained by his mercy today. What happens when that dam breaks? What happens when his mercy runs out and all of that wrath is released? Do you really want to be standing in the path? Or do you maybe want to talk about how to escape? Would it be okay if we talked for a minute about salvation? Saves a lot of time that otherwise we'd spend talking to people who just want to argue for the sake of arguing. A lot of times I'll even say that. I'll, I'll, I'll say at the beginning of the conversation, let's make a deal. You don't waste my time, I don't waste your time. Because a waste of time is all it's going to be until, willing, until someone is willing to at least consider what Paul is saying in these three verses. We've all sinned. We've all done wrong. Our own words prove it. Once someone is coming to that point, then they've gotten past the objections and the distractions and the diversions. Once they've realized, hey, I might be under condemnation here, they're probably going to be a lot more interested in hearing about salvation and how Jesus died to make it possible. Okay, but I'm a Christian, Patrick. I, I, I get all that. I understand God's wrath. I'm grateful that Jesus stood in my place and hung on the cross and asked God to, to let loose the dam holding back his wrath and to let wave after wave of wrath crash on him instead of me so I could be spared. I get it, understand it, grateful for it. So what is there in this message for me? Two things as we wrap up this morning. The first, please make sure that's true. I heard you say, I, I'm saved, I heard you say that. But indulge me, listen to Paul's exhortation in verses 1, 2, and 3. And make sure you're not saying, well, I might be bad, but I'm not as bad as him. I might have done this and this, but at least I haven't done that, that they do. Get rid of the but. Get rid of the qualifiers and the comparisons. God doesn't grade on a curve. You've sinned, and so have I, and so have we all. The invisible tape recorder proves it. To pretend otherwise isn't just foolish, it's fatal. Because if I keep pretending that I'm okay when I'm not okay, and I stand before God in my works, that's eternally fatal. Confess and repent. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Confess with your lips. He died to save you from your sin. No but, no at least. Ask Jesus for forgiveness. 
based on his blood shed on the cross, based on the sacrifice he made taking your wrath. I said two things, and that's the first thing. Make sure you're saved. Search yourself. Ask God to search you. Second thing, be careful of tribesmen on island conversations about who and who isn't also saved. Not saying don't have them. I'm saying be careful. Satan, for the moment, has dominion over this world, and we know that Satan is a sorcerer. He's a magician. He's an illusionist. Can he do miracles? Yes, after a fashion. Does he usually? No. He relies on something much more pedestrian. He relies on the magician's trick of misdirection. Look over here. So we're not paying attention to what's happening over there. The illusionists who are really good will do a big cheesy look over here so that we can outsmart them and say, oh, I'm, what's really important is what's over there. But no, this is just a second distraction so that we don't look at what's happening down here. What's my point? A lot of conversations that people want to have, that they're willing to have, they're just misdirection. To take the focus and energy away from the conversation you really want to have. The conversation about their salvation. When the focus degrades into, well, do you think this is a sin? Does God really judge people who do that? Can, can someone be condemned for something that nobody that I know thinks is wrong? What are we talking about? I don't know, but we're not talking about Jesus anymore. There might be a real question there. Don't run away because there might be a legitimate conversation. But it might be a big distraction to take the focus off of them or to waste your time. Satan can't defeat you, but he can send you down blind alleys and out on wild goose chases and into the woods on snipe hunts. I've talked before about when Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or other people in, in short-sleeved shirts come to my door. I will talk to them as long as they will let me. Because they're not going to hurt me. And as long as they're talking to me, they're not talking to anybody else. Hey, if I can figure that out, Satan can figure that out. If I can do it to them, Satan can do it to me. Is this really sin? Can God really judge this? It was sin 4,000 years ago, but is it still sin today? I'll talk about any of those things with someone who's genuinely trying to figure out how salvation works and they need to make sense of it so they can pursue it. I just need to remember, if I'm going to go there, I still need to keep the main thing the main thing. And so do you. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is 10 out of 10 people sin. We can disagree about what is or isn't, but the only person who never sinned was named Jesus. Everyone else sins, which means everyone else needs forgiveness. And, and that's what we got to keep pivoting to. That's what we need to keep coming back to. That's what we're here to talk about. Not here in church, here in this world. That's why God left us in this world after we were saved so that we could tell the other beggars where we found the bread. So if someone wants to say, well, I don't think murder is a sin, that's fine. 
Because maybe you haven't killed anyone, but you've sinned in other ways. Well, I don't think stealing is a sin. I think that there's no such thing as property, and we should all just shit fine. Stealing's not a sin, but you've done something else. You've done something you think is a sin. End of Romans 1 has, what, two dozen ways to sin. No one can blow all of them off. No one can, can go down the list and say, yeah, I don't think any of this is wrong. Everyone believes something is wrong. The way that we know, the invisible tape recorder. Everyone accuses others. I don't think this is a sin. I don't think God cares about this. Other churches don't have a problem with this. I don't know anyone who thinks that this is wrong. There is a place and time for those conversations. It's almost never with someone who needs Jesus. So my suggestion, don't, don't hasten to go there. Do what Jesus did with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Start by building a bridge. There's a whole list of things that I'm sure that you can disagree about with anybody. Find some common ground. You believe in right and wrong. Hey, so do I. You've done some of the things you think are wrong. So have I. So we've got that in common. We both agree there's right and wrong. We both agree we've each done wrong. What do you think happens next? You've done wrong. Where do you think that guilt goes? Can I tell you what I did with mine? Can I tell you who took it away? Can I tell you how it was forgiven? Can I talk to you about my friend Jesus? Lord, the more we study wrath, the more grateful we are for the cross. All oh, the depths that you've saved us from. The places you've rescued us from. The crimes you've forgiven. And having saved us, Lord, oh, how we want to be used of you to rescue others, to speak to others who may not even realize the deep pit that they're in. And the eternal pit that's waiting. Open our eyes, open our hearts, Lord, to have the conversations that you ordain, to have them well, to have them with grace, but to have conversations that also convey truth. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what's important is what happens next. What's important is what we do with that sin. Lord, by your grace and through your power, lead us to lead others to the cross.